Down by the Sally Gardens My love and I did meet She passed the Sally Gardens With little snow-white feet She bid me take love easy as the leaves grow on the tree. But I, being young and foolish, with her would not agree. In a field by the river, my love and I did stand. And on my leaning shoulder she laid her snow-white hand. She bid me take life easy as the grass grows on the weir. But I was young and foolish and now am full of tears. Hello out there to my very kind benefactors and dear friends. It is just us here. My name is Kevin Ziolan and welcome to the Fireside Headstuff Plus bonus content. Just for all of you, I think there's 30 of you at this stage, you very generous, kind early adopters. I know some of you, in fact, a lot of you have come over from the Patreon. And I can't thank you enough because it means so much to me that people listen to Fireside at all. And the idea that people would actually reach into their pockets and support it financially, even in any small or large way, is incredible. It really, uh, it's an extra push every now and then to just know that it is being acknowledged and appreciated. So thank you so much. So it's quite a strange thing to be recording an episode, a very much a bespoke thing, but it's also very nice because these are the kind of gigs I like performing live, these very, very intimate ones. And you feel you can speak with a different kind of personal and intimate nature because I know that if you are listening to this, you are very much someone who actively has engaged with Fireside, whether whether you've been listening to since the very beginning or you're a more recent listener. But when Headstuff Plus was announced, I, uh, I met it with kind of delight and a bit of apprehension as well because Fireside takes probably more work to produce than a lot of other podcasts, certainly any interview-based ones, which is what the vast majority of podcasts are. They require quite little editing, quite little writing, whereas Fireside demands an incredible amount of research and writing and recording and editing, all of which is done by myself. And I'm delighted to be a one-man band. It's how I've always liked to be because while I do hope and do enjoy collaboration and do to hope to do more and more collaboration, I feel if you can't work for yourself and if you can't do, at least try and do everything yourself, how are you ever going to have 
an appreciation for all the areas of the construction of a piece of art to truly collaborate with others and to truly ask people to collaborate with you. So I'm delighted to be able to do that with Fireside. But there was the added demand then. Well, first of all, it has taken me a long time to build up the Patreon account. Then suddenly I had to swap everyone over to this and to ask people who were already being generous enough to donate to the Patreon to go stop that and come and put your money over here. But in the long run, it does make a lot more sense because Headstuff has produced Fireside since the very beginning. They gave me this platform. They allowed me to reach all of you out there. And I would much rather a commission go to Alan Bennett and Paddy O'Leary and all of them over at Headstuff uh, to an Irish company than to the big podcast conglomerate that is Patreon. But that's a long, a very long introduction, but it, as I said, it is a very strange thing to be recording this, but a really nice and different thing. So in terms of bonus content, that was the other thing that was a bit daunting, was the idea that Fireside taking so much of my time to do, the idea of then having to create more content and a bonus episode to try and do that every month, which has slipped, certainly. I know I had the St. Patrick's Day episode and a few little bits, but I wanted to start doing something a lot more deliberate. If I sound out of breath, it is because I'm in quarantine in Sydney, day four for five-month tour of World of Musicals, and I am in a hotel room that is air-conditioned, but uh, has no open window, so it is... Uh, can be a bit more difficult to breathe. I've turned off the air conditioning. If it gets, if I get particularly short of breath, I may have to have a gentle whir on in the background. But when I first asked, for, I called out for people to suggest things that they might want me to do as bonus episodes for Fireside. One of the things I suggested was just a reading of some Yeats poetry, because for Poetry Day Ireland, I did this myth in Irish poetry Instagram live which my intention was to release as a bonus episode on Headstuff Plus, but the audio quality, because it could only be done through the phone, the audio quality just wasn't good enough to be released as a piece of audio. And I would rather give a much more bespoke performance to you all as well, something that genuinely only the supporters of Headstuff Plus can get. So I floated the idea of reading some Yeats poems and talking about them a bit as... Yeats is basically the godfather of Irish mythology, himself and Lady Gregory. Without the two of them, we probably wouldn't have preserved or a lot of this Irish mythology wouldn't have come back into focus in the late 19th century and early 20th century like it did. So the first song I sang is from Yeats's very first collection. It's down by the Sally Gardens. A very simple and beautiful love song that has been in my life. All, as long as I can remember, because my mother always sang it. She sang it and played at the flute, herself and my dad's band. And I did this gig before Christmas, the Abbey Calling, which I talked about a bit on the podcast, I think, where basically we rang audience members up all around the world and gave them these bespoke performances over the phone. And one of the things, one of the pieces I did was down by the Sally Gardens. And it's a song traditionally sung by a woman, certainly any time I've heard it. And it was really nice to learn it myself because it's a beautiful piece, a cappella, so short, but perfect, you know, very much like like a good poem should be. 
but that works so well musically to its tune. But following that, the first poem I'm going to read rather than sing. This is probably my first, this was probably the piece that made me fall in love with Yeats in the first place, outside of a kind of school or academic con context, you know, that I came back around to myself. It's a poem that I had to perform in a gig just after I came out of college. And I'm, I'm someone who's always been quite adept at learning lines. I like very lyrical songs and performing Modern Major General from Gilbert and Sullivan in this show right now. And I love that. That's my, that's my crack to uh, learn very, very dexterous, very lyrical stuff. But I remember learning this poem for this gig and it was the first time I realised how it's a different thing to learn a poem for a piece of performance because a poem, more than any other piece of prose or, or drama, demands absolute perfection in, in how it's spoken. Every syllable has to count, every, every word has to count. And it presents this new challenge. And it is this kind of interworld of performance because you can't speak it totally naturally because it isn't a piece of dialogue. But also to get into this very sing-songy way that people can sometimes read poetry can be pleasurable for a listener, but then you'll very quickly nod off and start stop paying attention. You'll more kind of get lulled into it. It's a poem that I have read on the podcast before when we talked about Engus Og, who has been reappropriated as the god of love, Engus of the Tua de Danan. And it's the so it is called the Song of Wandering Engus. I went out to the hazel wood because a fire was in my head, and cut and peeled a hazel wand, and hooked a berry to a thread. And when white moths were on the wing, and moth-like stars were flickering out, I dropped the berry in a stream, and caught a little silver trout. When I had laid it on the floor, I went to blow the fire aflame, but something rustled on the floor and someone called me by my name. It had become a glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair, who called me by my name and ran and faded through the brightening air. Though I am old with wandering through hollow lands and hilly lands, I will find out where she has gone and kiss her lips and take her hands and walk among long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. This piece is one of Yeats's earlier works. It's from his third collection, I believe, The, the Wind Among the Reeds, from 1899, I think it is. Um, yes, 1899. That's around the time he was collecting the fairy and folktales book that so much of Fireside comes from. And I have this uh, I have this little book of Yeats poems. When I was 22, my parents, my mother just bought a new car and she wanted to take it for a drive. So herself and my father decided that they would go to Sligo in the northwest of Ireland. And... 
they asked me if I would like to come. And it was the first time I remember like being an adult and being asked to come on a trip with my parents. And it was the first time I went, the first time probably I consciously hung out with my parents, treating them as adults with me as an adult as well. That's a marvelous thing if you have the opportunity to do. I loved it so much. And I'd never been to Sligo, I'd never been to this ancestral home of Yates. And so I said I would come, but what I wanted to do was to go to Yeats's grave and buy a collection of Yeats poetry and read it over the course of driving around the county of Sligo. That's exactly what I did. I got this little book of Yeats poetry at the gift shop in uh, Drumcliff Cemetery where Yeats is buried. It's very, very dear to me and I've had it ever since. So I've had it for six or seven years now. And it comes with me ever like it's with me in Australia right now. I think it's the only physical book I have with me as I have my Kindle now to reduce weight for traveling around. But I always like to keep at least one physical book with me. And if I had to only pick one, it probably would be this book of Yeats poems. And it has many of the poems in it, many of the great ones. It has about a hundred of them. Although I do have a complete works of Yeats at home. And he wrote about 450, 500 poems that were printed. Uh, I think it's about that. And there's about a hundred in this. But there are some very notable absences. And the Song of Wandering Angus is one of the songs not in this collection. Luckily, I know it mostly off by heart. Um, Having performed it, it's recorded on my Irish album. But I was always very disappointed that it isn't. Because it is one of the... Yeats's earlier work is criticised very heavily because it's very late romanticism and it's quite imitative and it just isn't considered as sophisticated and as genre-changing as his later work, uh, some of which I will read today. But I just love it, not just because of its association with Irish mythology, which in fairness it is its own interpretation of, because as we had the story of Angus Oak dreaming of his love and going to find his love, and Yeats took that story and reappropriated it as himself. And he created this new myth of Engesog, fishing and catching this fish that turned into a girl that he then chased. This story within this poem isn't actually part of Irish mythology. It is of Yeats' invention based around the idea of the dream of Angus. So it's Yeats putting himself in this role because Yeats had this long unrequited love affair with Maud gone and so he is he has turned this into the ultimate poem of unrequited love or of the pursuit of love without ever necessarily achieving it because by the end of the poem Angus is old he's old with wandering but still the fire within him hasn't gone out and he still hasn't given up this pursuit and while for a lot of us There could be something quite dangerous in that idea of never giving up on something, never giving up on a pursuit. I am still so glad that a poem like this exists and poetry like this does still exist. And if nothing else, it is just a nice experience to be involved in the reading of this poem. It'll always be, always be one of my favorites because of that. But to to my little, my little book of Yeats poetry, I'll start with, uh, I'll start, I will continue 
with another piece that I performed in uh, in the Abbey Calling. This is quite an interesting piece in terms of its title because this is either known as A wishes for the cloths of heaven or he wishes for the cloths of heaven. And A is one of the children of Lear, although I'm quite unsure if if that it is that. It's probably not that specific A that uh, Yeats is referring to. A spelled A-E-D-H, one of the more tricky pronunciations if, if you don't have a kind of grasp or an idea of the unpredictable pronunciation of the Irish language. But this was a piece I performed in the Abbey Calling as well. It's certainly the final line of it is probably the most famous in Yeats. And it's still one of his earlier pieces, but it's where he starts to approach less lyricism and just word perfection. So this is A Wishes for the Cloths of Heaven. Had I the heavens embroidered cloths, inwrought with golden and silver light, the blue and the dim and the dark cloths of night and light and the half-light, I would spread the cloths under your feet, but I, being poor, have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly, because you tread on my dreams. And that's all there is to it. Just this, it's kind of like this poetic anthem, the poet's anthem. The idea of, of having nothing nothing to offer but your love and your dreams. But that being so much, you know, the idea of giving those to someone. You know, so much more than any kind of monetary or financial gift the idea of giving the gift of your love or your soul to someone which you can possibly never get back you know I'm, i might sound like i'm being overly romantic now but like think of the mind in a very tangible way once you once you lose your mind that is something you can often never get back and it's no different to consider that like heart and body and soul, the idea of giving someone your dreams or giving someone your love. I haven't been, I haven't actually been practicing meditation that long, kind of dipped in and out of it, but I've, I've got very serious about it in the last couple of months doing this hour of the day of meditation thing. And I won't go on about it here because it's of no interest to anyone. But it has been very, very interesting to be prioritizing my mind properly for the first time even for these last few months because it just made me finally realize there's a lot of obvious truths we tell ourselves and we tell ourselves that we believe but then we often don't and that's why these hackneyed or cliched things to say often are of value and aren't inane but there's no doubt that if you have a solid mind you're very well equipped for hardship whereas if you have poor mental health, you could be on top of the world and have all the, the wealth and riches and still be utterly, utterly miserable. And I think A, wishes for the cloths of heaven makes me, reminds me of that an awful lot. The idea of having nothing to give someone but 
your mind and your heart and your body and the true, the inherent, the inherent value of that. It's a great Bo Burnham song, one of my favorite comedians, his Lower Your Expectations song, which very much like this, I consider a contemporary masterpiece on love and on the trials and tribulations of it. And that's how we all want a, a perfect children, a perfect life, a perfect husband or a perfect wife. But deep down, we know we don't deserve it. But we all deserve love, even when we aren't our best because we all suck. But love can make us suck less. I don't see any difference between these two poems, between that poem, uh, this poem and that song. It's the same idea. And incredible that all of that is within the space of eight lines. So that's eight wishes for the cloths of heaven. The next is a lot more of a simpler one. It's literally it's on the next page. Uh, I love this poem because this idea, there's this idea, there's this very natural thought that Yeats stuff is all very lofty and lyrical and life-changing which it is but then there's a lot of very simple poems as well because Yeats at heart was a man obsessed with folklore and fairy stories and mythology and ballads and simple folk songs and so from the same collection as A Wishes for the Cloths of Heaven there's a poem called The Fiddler of Dooney which I'm quite fond of which goes when I play on my fiddle in Dooney folk dance like a wave of the sea my cousin is a priest at Kilvernet, my brother in Macarabri. I passed my brother and cousin, they read in their books of prayer. I read in my book of songs I bought at the Sligo Fair. When we come at the end of time to Peter sitting in state, he will smile on the three old spirits, but call me first through the gate. For the good are always the merry, save by an evil chance. And the merry love the fiddle, and the merry love to dance. And when the folk there spy me, they will all come up to me, with here is the fiddler of Dooney, and dance like a wave of the sea. Same poet, just, and of as much value to him as much as to us. You know, maybe people, that's not one that people would be putting in collections very often, but Yeats still put it in his collection, and his publishers still put it in. So Yeats still had a love for his simple folk songs and his simple ballad, ballad poems, which I earn even more respect for him for. This next one is another poem that is actually not in this collection, but it is one of his more... When Yeats started to develop more around his like fourth or fifth collection, he started to move further and further and further away from Irish mythology and his folklore-inspired stuff and started creating his own mythology, very much so. Um, partially because he developed as a poet, but partially as well because of what started to happen with the political scene in Ireland. Because Cúchulán and a lot, and Phil McCool and a lot of these mythological heroes started to be reappropriated by Republicans and nationalists started to be using for as inspiration for martyrdom and and violent ends so naturally that created this move away from irish mythology that was tainted by the bloodshed and in the cause for irish freedom but there's another one of those poems that is quite overt in its mythological references and quite late for yeats for this kind of piece 
and it is about Gull McMorna, who many of you might remember was Fionn McCool's main rival in uh, in the Fenian cycle. He is the one who kills Cool, Fionn's father, and the one who Fionn must overtake as the leader of the Fianna. And it is it is Gull who steps down and then becomes an uneasy ally for the remainder of Fionn's life until at the very end, uh, on the final battle against the Fianna, when Gull McMorna finally does turn against Fionn McCool. But this is a, the wonderfully titled The Madness of King Gull. I sat on cushioned otter skin. My word was law from Ith to Aman, and shook at Inveramergan, the hearts of the world-troubling seamen, and drove tumult and war away from girl and boy and man and beast. The fields grew fatter day by day, the wild fowl of the air increased, and every ancient olive said, while he bent down his fading head, he drives away the northern cold. They will not hush. The leaves a flutter round me. The beech leaves old. I sat and mused and drank sweet wine. A herdsman came from inland valleys, crying, The pirates drove his swine to fill their dark-beaked hollow galleys. I called my battle-breaking men and my loud brazen battle-cars from rolling vale and rivery glen. And under the blinking of the stars fell on the pirates by the deep and hurled them by the gulf of sleep. These hands won many a torque of gold. They will not hush. The leaves are flutter round me. The beech leaves old. But slowly, as I shouting slew and trampled in the bubbling mire, in my most secret spirit grew a whirling and a wandering fire. I stood Keen stars above me shone, around me shone, keen eyes of men. I laughed aloud and hurried on by rocky shore and rushy fen. I laughed because birds fluttered by and starlight gleamed and clouds flew high and rushes waved and waters rolled. They will not hush. The leaves are flutter round me, the beech leaves old. And now I wander in the woods when summer gluts the golden bees. Or in autumnal solitude Arise the leopard-coloured trees Or when along the wintry strands The cormorants shiver on their rocks I wander on and wave my hands And sing and shake my heavy locks The grey wolf knows me By one ear I lead along the woodland deer The hares run by me growing bold They will not hush The leaves a flutter round me The beech leaves old I came upon a little town that slumbered in the harvest moon and passed a tiptoe up and down, murmuring to a fitful tune how I have followed night and day a trampling of tremendous feet and saw where this Olympian lay deserted on a doorway seat and bore it to the woods with me of some inhuman misery our married voices wildly trolled they will not hush the leaves are flutter round me the beech leaves old. I sang how when day's toil is done. Orkil shakes out her long dark hair that hides away the dying sun and sheds faint odours through the air when my hand passed from wire to wire it quenched with sound like falling dew the whirling and the wandering fire. But lift 
a mournful Ulalu, for the kind wires are torn and still, and I must wander wood and hill through summer's heat and winter's cold. They will not hush, the leaves a-flutter round me, the beech leaves old. Jesus, what an experience that poem is. That is, I spoke earlier about how, you know, poetry is like this interperformance where it's not quite, it's not quite naturalistic because, you know, it isn't dialogue, it isn't real spoken, it's it's a heightened language. But then you don't want to get into this sing-songy tone as well, which is very easy to, to go into, and I'm sure I still do from time to time. But I actively pursue against it. But this this is poem. This this poem's quite different because this is very much like it is this dramatic monologue from the perspective of King Gull. And it's a, like the Song of the Wandering Angus. It's a side of him and this journey of him that we don't really see before or since. It's totally unique to Yeats. But what an incredible journey and uh, descent and an exploration of madness. It isn't a poem I've I've studied a huge amount. You know, it's it's one I just discovered in actually the Oxford Book of Irish Poetry I got a couple of years ago, um, and it just I had to include it. I'm gonna keep trying because there's a few more I want to get in before we wrap things up, and if I chat for ages between all of them, we'll be here all night. But I hope you're all enjoying this as we go through. Again, it's nice. This this one will probably this episode will be significantly less edited than most episodes of Fireside, and there's something quite nice about this that you can really trust. This is me, you know, being my most myself, sitting in a hotel room in Sydney with a little book of Yeats poems, talking to you 30 people. Who knows, maybe after this episode it might grow to more. If you're a person who's been listening since, uh, who's joined since and is listening to this piece of bonus content, you are very welcome along, and thank you for your support. Another very famous uh, one next... Billy Collins, great American poet. He was the poet laureate. Um, over there, I took his master class, um, which was very, very good. But uh, he talked about how poets can corner the market of themes and of subject matter. And he said that uh, one of the that if you're writing a poem about a swan. You're into Yeats's territory. Yeats basically cornered the market on swan poetry. He had many, many poems about swans. And if you go to Sligo Town to this day, when you're wading through the the waves of hen and stag parties, if you still look in the river in uh, in Sligo Town, you'll still always see a few swans. But uh, Cool Park, which was the ancestral home of Lady Gregory, which is where Yeats and Singh and all of them went to write and chat and have the crack. That is where he spent a huge amount of his time, and this is the poem, The Wild Swans at Cool. The trees are in their autumn beauty. The woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky. Upon the brimming water among the stones are nine and fifty swans. The nineteenth autumn has come upon me since I first made my count. I saw, before I had well finished, all suddenly mount and scatter wheeling in great broken rings upon their clamorous wings. 
I have looked upon those brilliant creatures, and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight the first time on the shore, the bell-beat of their wings above my head, trod with a lighter tread. Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams or climb the air. Their hearts have not grown old. Passion or conquest, wander where they will, attend upon them still. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful. Among what rushes will they build? By what lake's edge or pool delight men's eyes when I awake some day to find that they have flown away? You start to get into territory here because Yeats bizarrely was considered both a romantic and a modernist poet. And this is kind of the the interperiod where you see both of those at play, where he's still wrote, writing in a very romantic way, but his language is becoming different and he's starting to experiment with different things. He started being less rooted by form and meter and started really just becoming himself. And it's Yeats's brutal, brutal humanity, which is my favorite aspect of him and is probably the least explored by those who just have a kind of passing or school schoolroom knowledge of him because you just picture the the monocle and the cape and beautiful words but there's a a brutal brutal humanity to him Yeats famously said that the only things worth writing about are sex and death which is not something you could probably imagine him saying but Yeats there are very few artists who are considered to have only gotten better with age because usually at a certain point artists dis disprove if that's the word uh, or disim disimprove um because you know usually when they're young there's no pressure for greatness and they they can be truly true to themselves but then once there's an expectation or worse there becomes an awareness of genius that is usually the death of good art but there's a few of them. Wagner is one. Verdi is one. Uh, Picasso is one. Yeats is one. There are a select few artists from throughout history who kind of just got better and better with age. And Yeats is certainly like his best poetry is from his last years. It just constantly got better. And yet, because he was not a god or a hero, he was just a man who wrote pretty words uh, Yeats hated getting old. He was terrified of death. And he had several procedures in later life to uh, restore his virility, try to cure his, his old age impotence. And The Wild Swans at Cool, to me, then, is a poem about that, is as he's starting to... Because if the first poem I read was from, like, 1898, 1899, this is from 1919, so this is a full 20 years later... And he's alive for another 20 years after this. So he's starting, he's middle-aged, he's going to be old soon. And he has that realization about how long, how long he's been a poet, how long he's been a success, how long he's been alive, and how he's still in very much a stage of life, like a, a very virile, <laughs> virile is just the only word, a very active stage of life, but one day he will not be. There will be a time where he will be alive as so many of us will, so many of us that are lucky enough to get to old age, 
there'll be a time where we are alive and less full of action than we once were. And I think that's probably why Wild Swans at Cool is considered one of his good ones. There's two more I would like to read. Um, but do let me know if you enjoy this kind of thing, you know, because I love this kind of stuff because I write poetry and I'm coming to the end of developing this first collection and this is so beneficial for me to be reading and talking about poems like this um, and I love this kind of thing and it's not something I can do on the podcast a huge amount but let me know if you do respond or like this kind of thing and if you don't like it at all let me know this will be the only thing like it uh, because like this is so specifically for you supporters of Headstuff Plus you're the only people who will probably ever hear this and you know, you've taken the time and the efforts to actually financially support Fireside. You deserve to to get what you want. And so do let me know. I would be quite remiss if I didn't read the following poem, uh, which is one of Yeats's least mythological ones, but it is very much his own mythology. Probably the most, I think it's the best poem ever written, to be honest. I say in my expert, expert opinion... It's a poem that's immensely important to me. It's my favorite poem, not just because I think it is the best poem ever written, which it is, uh, but because my grandfather used to perform this and there is an old recording on YouTube. I've spoken about this before and I've read it on the podcast, but I'm going to read it again here. It is The Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming... Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs, while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again. But now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Ah, oh, so good. So, so good such a visceral experience in the mouth and in the ear well i hope in your ear but even just reading aloud hearing those words spoken it's so violent it's yeats's mythology it's his condemnation of christianity it's him bringing the pagan and the christian world to a head it's his attempt to create a new post-apocalyptic world it's miserably pessimistic and it's wonderfully optimistic I would like to dedicate that performance to a woman uh, named Sarah Lou, who's a puppeteer I was hanging out with uh, a few months ago. 
and I read her that poem on the beer one night, which is not something I would like to be in too much of the habit of. You know, I'm probably had a few if I'm reading you poetry at night. Um, but she didn't know it, and I wanted to read it to her. And when I read it to her, she went, it's very hopeful, isn't it? I said, it is hopeful. There's a whole episode of The Sopranos. It's one of the very last episodes about the second coming, and it's portrayed as this miserable, quite nihilistic thing. And it does have those tendencies, but ultimately it's about the creation, the destruction, and the throwing out of the old and the creation of something new. It's one I could go on about for a vast, vast while, but I will not hear as we're coming to a close. Um, I just love it, yeah. And if you want to read my granddad, read it better than me um, go onto YouTube and just type in the second coming and it's like this animated it's like a crudely animated still image of Yeats with the mouth moving it's not attributed or credited to my grandfather at all but we have the record at home to prove and we we want uh, we want that credited at some point this is the last the very last poem in this Yeats book it's one of the last ones he ever wrote and it kind of brings everything back to his earliest days as he as all he wanted was was to keep living and to have an erection and to stay virile, which is uh, today's episode has been sponsored by the word virile. It is set back in Sligo beneath Ben Bulban, uh, the wonderful mountain there, which of course was where Queen Maeve was to be was to be buried and there is no better way to end this piece. So I hope you have all really enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed it at all. I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed spending time with in all of your company, knowing that this will only be listened to by such a select few people who deserve us so much for what you've given me just listening to the podcast, never mind actually supporting it. So thank you so much. I hope you continue to do so both. Um, and I'll see you back out there. I'll see you for the next bonus material, piece of bonus material, which you can all let me know what you would like. Message me on Instagram, Farsabard, or the Farsabard at gmail.com. Because I don't think you can message on Headstuff Plus, which is something you should be able to do. But it's a new thing. You know, we're we're trying to make it good. And it'll be good because of all you early adopters. So thank you so much. So this is, I'm going to leave it with this. Thank you so much. This is Under Bell Bolton. Let up or under Ben Bulban. Swear by what the sages spoke round the Mariotic lake that the witch of Atlas knew spoke and set the cocks a crow. Swear by those horsemen, by those women, complexion and form prove superhuman that pale, long-visaged company that airs an immortality, completeness of their passions won, now they ride the wintry dawn where Ben Bulban sets the scene. Here's the gist of what they mean. Many times man lives and dies between his two eternities, that of race and that of soul, and ancient Ireland knew it all. Whether man dies in his bed or the rifle knocks him dead, a brief parting from those dear the worst man has to fear. Though grave diggers' toil is long, sharp their spades, their muscles strong, they but thrust their buried men back in the human mind again. You that Mitchell's prayer have heard, send war in our time, O Lord. 
Know that when all words are said and a man is fighting mad, something drops from eyes long blind. He completes his partial mind, for an instant stands at ease, laughs aloud, his heart at peace. Even the wisest man grows tense with some sort of violence before he can accomplish fate, know his work, or choose his mate. Poet and sculptor do the work, nor let the modish painter shirk what his great forefathers did. Bring the soul of man to God, make him fill the cradle's right. Measurement began our might, forms a stark Egyptian thought, forms the gentler Phidias wrought. Michelangelo left a proof on the Sistine Chapel roof, where but half-awakened Adam can disturb globe-trotting Madam till her bowls are in heat. Proof that there's a purpose set before the secret working mind, profane perfection of mankind. Quattrocento put in paint on backgrounds for a god or saint. Gardens were a soul's at ease, where everything that meets the eye, flowers and grass and cloudless sky, resemble forms that are or seem. When sleepers wake and yet still dream, and when it's vanished still declare, with only bed and bedstead there that heavens had opened, gyres run on. When that greater dream had gone, Calvair and Wilson, Blake and Claude, prepared a rest for the people of God. Palmer's phrase, but after that confusion fell upon our thought. Irish poets, learn your trade. Sing whatever is well made. Scorn the sort now grouping up, all out of shape from toe to top. Their unremembering hearts and heads, base-born products of base beds. Sing the peasantry and then hard-riding country gentlemen, the holiness of monks, and after porters, drinkers, randy laughter, sing the lords and ladies gay that were beaten into the clay through seven heroic centuries. Cast your minds on other days that we in coming days may be still the indomitable Irishry. Under bare Ben Bulban's head, in Drumcliff's churchyard, Yeats is laid. An ancestor was rector there, long years ago. A church stands near, by the road an ancient cross. No marble, no conventional phrase, on limestone quarrelled near the spot. By his command, these words are cut. Cast a cold eye on life, on death, horsemen pass by.